friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Our guest today is Nicole Fox for a conversation on her monograph, After Genocide, Memory and Reconciliation in Rwanda, published in 2021 by the University of Wisconsin Press as part of their Critical Human Rights series. Nicole Fox is an associate professor of criminal justice at California State University, Sacramento, where she teaches about atrocity crimes, mass incarceration, global criminology, and law. Her research centers on how racial and ethnic contention impacts communities, including how remembrances of adversity shape social change, collective memory, and present-day social movements. Her book we're discussing today, After Genocide, focuses on how physical memorials to past atrocity shape healing, community development, and reconciliation for survivors of genocide and genocidal rape. Her most recent project examines bystander intervention with an emphasis on individuals who conducted acts of rescue during times of social unrest and political violence. Her scholarship, has been published in Social Problems, Signs, Social Forces, Deviant Behavior, the Journal for Scientific Study of Religion, Sociological Forum, and Societies Without Borders, among others. Her work has generously been supported by numerous national grants, and she also serves on the United Nations Economic and Social Council and contributes to the UN Commission for the Status of Women held annually at the headquarters. Nicole Fox, welcome to Madison BookBeat. Thank you so much for having me. Nicole, I'd like to jump right into to thinking about the context of the, of what you write about. So next year will be the 30-year anniversary of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. Could you walk our listeners through the historical background and socio-political context of this event? Yes. So it's it's a complicated history and I'm not going to be able to do justice in just a couple minutes. So I'll preface it with that. But before colonialization, Rwanda was made up of many different groups and that included Tutsi, Hutu, and Twa. And these were mainly, these were mainly based on class. So who owned cows, who owned land, who took care of the land and agriculture and who did pottery. And if you owned a certain amount of cows, you could then become a Hutu from a Hutu to a Tutsi. And the reason why I tell this is because these these categories were, were social constructions that could change. And there were kingdoms, and so there wasn't necessarily social harmony, as there is not in kingdoms. There is hierarchies and inequality, but there wasn't the type of violence or inequality that there was with colonialization. And so when Germany came with the first wave of colonialism, that was when you first saw the Tutsis get favored because they quote unquote looked more European. And you saw the first kind of wave of eugenics as well in that time. Germany then lost Rwanda in the first world war. Uh, and that's when Belgium got, got Rwanda. And Belgium really ruled with also the white fathers, the Catholic church, and that's when you saw these identity cards that were instrumental for the genocide that were instituted as a way of life. And those identity cards made your ethnicity uh, something that was was not malleable. It was you were a Tutsi, a Hutu, or a Twa. And so at that point, 
Tutsis were able to access positions of power in the church, education. They were able to be favored by all of the colonial resources and, and units of power. And this was a technique that you see in a lot of other kind of rule from afar colonial powers. If you can separate the groups, then they won't they won't come up and rise against you. And in 1962, you saw that that Hutus and the majority were were seeing the the movements for independence throughout Africa and and Rwanda too got independence and that's really when the dynamics changed and so Tutsi started to become marginalized and there were some times where where Rwanda had some stability and then there were also some moments of of massacre of of Tutsi so 1959 was one of those 19 um 72 was another one and so you you had a lot of violence and animosity that was at the surface from this long history of of colonialism which separated the groups in the 1990s with president habiamana there was real economic turmoil and there was a civil war from some tutsis that had left the country in exile and left to go to Uganda and created a, a group that was going to, to fight back in Rwanda. And they they left because there was no more opportunities for them in Rwanda. And even for Hutus in Rwanda, it was a really challenging time. Rwanda had owed the, the International Monetary Fund a bunch of money, copy coffee prices and there was really no way for young men for young people to to earn a living and so the civil war started which was was really hard on everyone and as president habiamana and the president of burundi and his his crew was coming back from peace talks in 1994 to try to to have to end this civil war, his plane was shot down and he was assassinated. And that was really the trigger that started the genocide. And the genocide lasted, you know, close to a hundred days in which upwards of a million people were were killed. And and gender and sexual-based violence was really the the norm, not the exception children were orphaned, a generation was lost, and the infrastructure of Rwanda was really demolished as well. During during the 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 genocide, the, the hundred days, who are the who are the agents of violence, who are the victims, and how does this um, affect the naming of this historical event? Like what is the proper terminology for, for even describing this event? It's a great question. So the the naming is a, a difficult one. The United Nations has called this event the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. And so if you're calling it what the United Nations calls it and what the government of Rwanda calls it, that that is the name that that is the proper term. In terms of who were the the agents of violence and who were the victims. Often I like to think about in terms, I study rescue as well as rescue and perpetration as those as actions instead of people, because often people occupy more than one category that you can be a rescuer and you can be a victim. So a lot of the rescuers that I interviewed also had their wives murdered or their husbands killed in front of them or their children murdered. And so in that sense, they're most definitely a victim and a rescuer. And they might have at times also been a bystander. I don't know. And a lot of the, the research on perpetrator shows that they also might have been victims as well or that perpetrators were forced to be killed or kill. And this isn't 
to excuse any behavior, but to say that when you look at the vast majority of those who participated in the killing, there were many people who killed for the very first time, very few people and a lot and a small group who really orchestrated the, the, the violence. And that some of those were only perpetrators and they maybe didn't lose anyone and they were only, only perpetrators. And so what I can say is that the organizers of the, the, the violence were this elite, what they call Hutu extremists, which were, were actually particularly the President Habiyama's wife's inner circle. And they were really instrumental in the propaganda of these narratives that Tutsis were outsiders and they did not belong in Rwanda. And so that that's who I think of as the the main perpetrators. And then there was, of course, civilian perpetrators as well. And what we know about them is my colleague Holly from the Ohio State does some interesting work on them. And what's interesting to me as someone who studies crime is that they don't fit our normal age graded crime. These are men who are typically older. They're 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 doing these actions to protect their families. So they're not these young um, men that we usually see in crime patterns that age out of criminal behavior or so, so they break a lot of the, our theories of crime that we have here in America. So that's the demographics. But I do want to note that there were female perpetrators and that they were, they were treated really differently oftentimes than male perpetrators because they, after the genocide, they broke social norms of both gender and morality. And so my colleague Sarah Brown does some really interesting work on that as well. So what role do memorials to the 1994 genocide play in contemporary Rwanda today? Yeah, they play a huge role in social life and, and political life and educational life for, for young people. So what's interesting about Rwanda that's different than a lot of other post-genocide spaces is that memory is really inescapable. So you can't go far outside even the capital without seeing some kind of memorial to the genocide. So there's there was over 500 when I left, but I think there was somewhere, someone said over 700 that I talked to at one point. And so there's memorials all over, and this is partially because it's such a small country and the, the genocide happened in every space, but it's also partially because of Rwandans' dedication to remembering it and because of their belief that remembering it will stop future violence. But memorials do, they have these complicated and diverse functions and they do a lot of heavy lifting in society is what I came to realize. And so in the earlier days, they they served these real big physical purposes. So they were, you know, burial sites, to help with the public health problem that there were so many human remains all, all over Rwanda, including in these spaces that they needed to start using like schools and stadiums and churches. But they also housed evidence later on for, for courts and, and trials. And they were burial sites. And later on, they became sites for for resources, so they housed archives. They also housed where major counseling sites or legal resources were. But then they also became, what I realized is that in some of the rural areas, they became sites for social networking. So people met at the memorial and then walked to school or some folks who lived, who still lived right in the area of where their family were killed and the memorial housed their their family's remains, they'd walk over there before school, sweep up, 
you know, the sidewalks, make sure it looked pretty. They'd go, they'd see their family, and then they'd go on with their day. So some of them had these really intimate spaces. And then some were called like the VIP memorial. And that was the memorial where, you know, <laughs> diplomats came and there were major ceremonies. And so, yes, they, with, with such diversity and with so many survivors and with them holding such political weight, they, they also had a variety of narratives. As you as you were observing all these, um, I know your work. You in, in in your work, you focus on three memorial sites in particular, uh, interviewing uh, a number of people who regularly um, attend it. But as you were as you were observing a variety of memorial sites, was there any one feature that you found um, continuous from site to site? Uh, was was there continuity, or was each site kind of its own its own experience? Yeah, I mean, I think each site was dedicated to making sure that everyone knew that colonialism had a part in in the division of Rwanda. And I think that was really important because it gave hope that it didn't always have to be the way that it was prior to the, the genocide. And so that made a lot of sense to me. And all of them were deeply invested in making sure that the narrative of what survivors went through was told so that there was compassion of how decimated Rwanda was. And what was really neat to me was how dedicated guides were to making sure that other East Africans heard this story. So when Kenyans came through, making sure that they heard and said, you know, remember the violence of your elections, let's, this, it could have been this and it wasn't. And, and making sure that the, the region heard this story and other Africans in particular, because there was a real strong belief that they didn't want anything like this to happen in their region again and anything they could do to make the suffering that they experienced not happen to other people, you know, was imperative to their, their work here, their memory work. As a scholar, why do you see memorials as important sites for research and analysis? What do we gain to understand as citizens, as a, as a public? What do we gain to learn from the stories that are told at memorials? Yeah, we gain a couple different things. So number one is the world is shifting into what I talk a little bit about into memorial mania, which is not not my turn term. It's a borrowed one because we're the world is doing less monuments and more memorials because we're having more recognition of atrocity and mass mass violence. And so in many ways, memorials are a mirror to or lens of understanding the mass atrocity that we're seeing unfolding over and over and over again in our in our society and if we can start to understand the more we can understand about mass atrocity the more we can prevent it so that's the first one the second one is oftentimes we ask people to heal in private so we say you should you should go to counseling and, or that's something you should deal with with your family or we straight up just decide to not talk about it. And individual counseling is absolutely important after you experience any type of violence or disruption or trauma in your life. But memorials are also a way that the public acknowledges that there was a disruption, that there was a social injustice that happened in the community. And so by studying the way that that public acknowledgement, what that does for the people who experience that, gives us actually a lens to new mechanisms of transitional justice. And in a lot of ways, memorials are a really affordable way of transitional justice. If we're looking at, you know, some of these other 
other mechanisms that we do. And so if we can see how these work and what works and what doesn't, these could be really important parts of our built environment that can help heal. They also, as they're permanent, but they're ever changing, Number three is that the way that they change over time, the way they can adapt with time, also gives social scientists a look at, at how, how society also is experiencing social change. So how society is integrating new narratives or integrating new people. And lastly, number four is it gives you a good example of also who's left out, who's silenced, who's included. And that's a way to also look for counter narratives. Are there people who are resisting? Why are they resisting? And that can give you a broader narrative, uh, a more inclusive narrative about the, the larger ecosystem of whatever that, that violent event was, that, that social disruption was. So these memorials can give you a lot of information about a lot of different dynamics. And just so our audience knows, like, how, how did you go about gathering your data for, for this work? Like, what kind of, what was it? I realized the project was changing each month that you were doing it, but what was a day in the life like? Yeah, so I was there for, for almost a year when you put all the different months together, about a year. And then I went back quite a few times uh, over about nine years to keep looking at the memorials, but I spent a year interviewing people. So to give the audience a little background too is, so for the most part, people who study memorials look at the architect, you know, the the structure of the memorials, what it looks like, or they'll they'll look at the public debates of the memorials or the how how people chose the memorial design. But rarely do people talk to the people, the very people who the memorial's for. So I thought, I'm going to just talk to the people. And and so what I did is I, I went to Rwanda, and I had gone before, and I, I lived with a family. And I found three memorials that had three different kind of focuses, one on education, one on commemoration, and one on reconciliation. And I hung out the, at the memorials day after day for, for months before I started interviewing people. And then I slowly started interviewing guides. And then I started interviewing people who came to the memorial, lived by the memorial, people who uh, attended the memorial on a regular basis, counselors who worked at the memorials, and started talking to, to try to really figure out how did the memorial matter in the lives of survivors of of genocide that that seemed to be to, to to my reading that seemed to be one of the key interventions of your work was trying to understand um how how cultural memory and how collective memory works and is experienced but you really emphasize the everyday experiences of of, of individuals or what at one point you call micro experiences Mm -hmm. um, you, you wrote that, you know, you looked at the banality of everyday memory and existence. Mm -hmm. How did that, how did that conform to or, 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 uh, contrast to the narrative that was going on in the memorial where, where people did, did people appropriate that narrative as, as, as their own, or, or was this something that, uh, even being part of that space, they still had their own stories and, and, and own memories from, from the experience. Well, I think people had their own experiences at the root of all of it. There were definitely times where people said the same narrative as the memorial or as the state. There were times where they echoed the state, but when I asked them why why they said that or why it mattered to them or why that narrative meant something. It wasn't for the same reasons as the state. And so I think it's easy to, you know, that was one of the pushbacks I got on, I think it was chapter, one of the chapters, chapter three or so, it was like, well, these, you know, so your participants are saying the same thing as the government. They're saying the same thing as the state. Wait, wait, know, which was what in a nutshell? What What is, it that? Was what about, is that narrative? It was about that, memorials matter in the prevention of violence and that that they were 
you know, echoing narratives of the state. But what I found is that actually memorials really mattered to them because it was an acknowledgement that what they went through was real. Because I think there was so much cognitive dissonance of what happened in those hundred days. And if anyone who's been to Rwanda recently, it would be, it's hard to fathom that there was a genocide with the cosmopolitan downtown or, you know, cityscape and, and even in the rural areas, it's so beautiful. And I think folks, those more memorials did matter and they really believed that having them was an effort in preventing mass violence. And rather than saying that because they aligned with the state or they believed in the governments, which they may might they may have, I don't know, but it was more because it m- mattered to them and it it they they made meaning out of that narrative for their own experience rather than it had any type of 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 support for you know state power or the consolidation of power on the state's part and i think that's one thing that we need to remember as researchers is that there are times when our participants may say something that aligns with the state and we may you know not understand it or we may wish that they had said something differently but i think asking why they said that and that sometimes you'll be surprised that the answer is a little bit more personal or a little bit more micro and sometimes it may it may be an everyday thing it may be something that just makes their lives more bearable after surviving a genocide you're listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Today we're talking to Nicole Fox about her monograph, After Genocide, Memory and Reconciliation in Rwanda, published in 2021 by the University of Wisconsin Press. Nicole, I'd, I'd like to kind of continue um, building on, on this idea that these different narratives that are, that, that, that are constructed and how narrative plays an important role in making meaning out of such unimaginable and unspeakable violence. And I'd love for you to read a passage aloud. This is a passage uh, in chapter three. Meaning making diminishes reliance on established historical facts and bends toward a narratives that serves the need, the needs of the teller. This is particularly true after severe trauma when world beliefs are shattered. Thus, meaning-making after trauma is not born out of truth per se, but out of the human desire for order and understanding because for survivors, as well as for nations, the reality of both the past and the imagined future is understood and articulated through the lens of the present. Yeah, so as, as as you were observing these different narratives, of people trying to make sense of this past. An idea that you introduced to us is what you call the, the stratification of collective memory. And you use this to describe the process through which some memories uh, get elevated and others marginalized in order to form a coherent national narrative. So in, in your time in Rwanda, what, what were some of the pro- prominent narratives that you saw getting elevated? And who were those stories that were, that were getting marginalized? Yeah, so Rwanda wanted to highlight their bright future, which is totally understandable. They wanted to to highlight that there was a bright future to look forward to. And sometimes that meant marginalizing narratives of survivors who were not doing well. So oftentimes at commemorations, you saw that the person who was sharing their testimony was often a man who was doing really well in genocide's aftermath, flourishing, had a job, you know, may have lost a limb, but was, was doing very well economically. And so oftentimes when I was interviewing women who had survived genocidal rape, were still in severe poverty, the breadwinner of their their 
life was either murdered or their father had been murdered and they were, you know, orphaned and, and raped during the genocide, you know, they didn't see themselves reflected in the state narrative. And therefore they were marginalized. And this is problematic in that collective memory depends on people recognizing themselves in this story. So in order for that to stay alive and for people to then want to engage in reconciliation programs and engage in, in, in these civic projects, you need people to then recognize themselves in these stories and want to engage. And so of, oftentimes women were marginalized in, in those narratives. And I wanna say a couple, couple things to that. First, Rwanda is not alone. So if anything, Rwanda is actually way beyond any other nation in that they actually discuss sexual and gender-based violence in their memorials and, and do so, you know, 30 years afterwards. I talk about in my book that, you know, it wasn't until 19, the mid-1990s that rape during the the Holocaust was was talked about in any kind of academic way where we're talking about that much earlier. And that was partially because of the the big cases of genocidal rape that came through the International Tribunal for Rwanda and Yugoslavia that came through. But but even if you look in Bosnia, there there's not memorials that honor the the rape survivors in the the way that that Rwanda does and Cambodia either. And so this is a larger problem that we're seeing in which women and, and gender-based violence is marginalized, including the sexual violence that men and boys experienced as well. And I have to say too, on a note, the US is no exception that we, you know, obviously have a challenge challenging time talking about gender and sexual based violence, given that the first memorial ever to this, you know, started in 2020 in Minneapolis. But number, number two is that I think that this is also so hard to talk about because we don't have a lot of language oftentimes. And so one thing that worked well in the memorials is when there was evidence or there was there were objects so that guides felt like they were telling a story that was just the truth rather than feeling like a burden of, of representation. Yeah. And, and, and trying to understand how to um, both kind of sit with these histories of violence and also reconcile the 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 rwandan government as, as you you write about it quite extensively they they developed this kind of reconciliation formula you admit guilt you ask the perpetrators admit guilt ask forgiveness and then the victims give the forgiveness um and i say that recognizing that uh perpetrators and victims is also blurry based on based on our our, our earlier conversation but um you write about kind of the upsides and downsides of this formula. On the one hand, this formula gives you something uh, kind of easy and or not, not, not easy, but easy to remember. Mm -hmm. it, it's a formula that, that lets people hang their hat on that. And yet there's also, it, it's, it's, it doesn't work quite that easily. Could you just speak more about that? How has this actually played out in Rwandan society? Yeah. And also I want to clarify, I don't think that this was invented by the Rwandan government per se, because this is a very, this is has deep roots in Christianity mm. and even Desmond Tutu, you know, mentioned some some idea about this and the West in particular loves this, this narrative. So so it has roots a lot of other places and and in many ways too, we echo this as well, right? Even as a parent, I echo this, you know, when my children get in a fight, like you did wrongdoing, it's time to say you're sorry. So I think this this plays out even in in kind of vernacular culture. But but yeah, so there was there's this kind of ideal, I think, of of reconciliation and that's that yes if people 
could admit wrongdoing and ask for forgiveness. And and that is compelling. And I I do think if in an in a you know ideal world that would be quite wonderful. And for many of the survivors I talk to, that would be particularly I don't know healing because they would also know where their their family's bodies were because that was part of the the drive for this formula is the people who didn't have didn't know where their loved ones were buried is that in this this act of confessing you would confess where the bodies were but yes this this didn't play out and so what ended up actually playing out that i discovered is and and that others have also discovered so there's these everyday reconciliations that other scholars have have also recognized that they play out in these kind of micro everyday that seem mundane but that are actually quite significant when you measure them as change over time and those can be riding the bus together or feeling safe in one's home or feeling like your neighbor isn't going to poison you and that those are really great ways to measure national reconciliation but that sometime i think that the reconciliation formula maybe held some hope but it might have timed out by the time that i was there as it as it made people feel quite disappointed and, and again, it had some gender ramifications and that women in particular felt really disappointed. After, after, after the genocide, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, like ethnicity was banned in, in, in Rwanda, right? Like ethnic, mm-hmm. uh, being identified by ethnicity was banned. Um, are, are folks living among each other, those who perpetrated the violence and those who, who were victims of it? Is, is, are, are these communities intermixed? Is, is micro-reconciliation, is this, is this uh, a readily available um, experience for, for, for people in Rwanda? Oh yeah, no, so the jails were, and the prisons were completely, you know, overcrowded. I mean, there was not, room for this and i believe in the in i don't remember exactly what year in 2000 but you know they pardoned a lot of people and then with the end of gachacha people went home and my colleague holly at ohio state does a lot of work on um reintegration but absolutely i mean people that i interviewed you know i asked about you know, their lives and they would volunteer that the perpetrator of whoever killed their family. Oh yeah. Come outside, you know, see that red gate. You know, he lives um, one house down behind the red gate and behind, you know, they could point out the house of the perpetrator. There were, there were, you know, people knew exactly where all the perpetrators of their own situation lived. So absolutely people are living side by side and, and many perpetrators or those who perpetrated violence moved right back into their their own homes their previous homes and a lot of survivors that i interviewed didn't move outside the community that they lived in uh, during the genocide and that's true for a lot of the rescuers that we interviewed as well and it isn't social harmony so i want to make sure that we're clear with your your audience here it's it's what i would call non-lethal coexistence and that means that they're functioning people are not revenge killing and and i think president kagami really made sure that that was not an option for people so people are not killing other people people for the most part were not worried about poisoning being poisoned by other people which i think was a change and I think that you only start getting more more of that comfort and even slightly closer on that social harmony scale across when you have newer generations. Yeah. We're speaking today with Nicole Fox about her recent monograph after genocide, memory and reconciliation in Rwanda. 
as I was reading, I think at one point I saw that uh, it seemed like this book was a, almost about like 10 years in, in, in the making from like when you first started doing the research until until uh, completion. And I just wanted to hear from you, like what types of practices or methodologies do you see as being necessary in a field that engages with post-conflict populations? How do you how do you do this ethically as a, as a researcher and a scholar? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. It was, it will, it was my first child, basically. (laughs) (laughs) It's my first baby. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to consider. And, you know, I got this from my colleague Ernest, but you want to do no harm where so much harm has already been done. And so I wanted to make sure that I I chose not to ask people about what happened during the genocide because that really wasn't my research question. And they could choose to tell me that again if they wanted to, and many did. But that was a choice that I made to make sure that I didn't re-traumatize anyone and that I didn't force anyone to relive a trauma that maybe they didn't want to share with an outsider. But I think making sure that your interview guide is really intentional and thoughtful and making sure that there's ways that you can share your research with others in ways that can can hopefully bring less suffering. But I think also part of it is having a lot of humility. I redid my interview questions a lot because for the reconciliation one, everyone told me about the reconciliation formula, but that wasn't happening. And so clearly I wasn't asking the right questions. And so I needed to go back and ask different types of questions. If you are going somewhere that's not your your native country or native language, if there's any way you can live with a family or live somewhere that, or have a research assistant, those were invaluable because I could ask like, is this normal? Is this, you know, what is this? And, you know, we had me and my research assistant had a great joke because then when something wasn't normal, he's like, this is definitely not normal. (laughs) So we had a good laugh about that. And, and, you know, I was so lucky to have this family and then they came and lived with me for years and, and, and I tried to learn the local language and that was really well received. But I think also making sure you keep in check your identity, but also a humility with that identity. So I talk in my book about how some of the women wanted me to write a letter about, I asked, you know, what can I get back? They wanted me to write a letter and deliver it to basically like the head of their neighborhood. I think that's what it would be. Uh, Asking for better care of their their toilets and so i like brought it and then brought it for them to sign because in my head i wanted them to have the agencies and i didn't want to be a white savior but they were like no we want you to sign it and you to bring it and i was like oh well i don't want to be with a white savior in my head i was having this whole discussion but really i just needed to shut up and listen to what they wanted because what they wanted was a white person to deliver this. So this got done because they didn't feel like they were getting listened to. And they felt like if someone from America said, fix these toilets, they would get done. I guess there's just some points where you can go back and forth, but also you have to just listen to the people that you're interviewing because they are experts in what they're, what they want and what they know. One, one important aspect of listening that you touch on as well is listening to the silences and the pauses. And I think you reference this as, as kind of like meta metadata during, during the, the, the interviews, but, um, but it seems like that there's a real attentiveness, um, and awareness that is necessary in these, in these types of interactions. Um, yeah, that was the late Leanne Fuji's term for it and i found that in my own data quite a bit is there were silences and i think you respect the pregnant pause and you can decide if you 
if you want to sit and cry with them at that moment, if they're crying or if you move on or if you stop the interview, but there, there has to be real deep care. And one thing that I did is I interviewed my participants two or three times. And so those pregnant pauses often came in the third interview. And so I knew them at least well enough also because I observed their everyday life so many times and, and I still visit them when I come back, which is nice, uh, some of them. And, and so I could, I could read some of the room and, and say, do you want to stop? The recorder's off. And this also, this, this kind of wax and wanes depend, depending on the year, right? I, you, you mentioned that, you know, part of, part of the responses of, of hope or, or, or forgiveness um, might be far away from the morning months of April through July, or people might have very different different responses. And so, also being mindful mindful of that that uh, the the time of year and, and and how close we are to morning months uh, affects yes. affects that. Yeah, I didn't expect that, but I I was wondering about how the anniversary of the morning period and anniversary of when people lost their family members might affect how they felt about forgiveness or memory or or any of these major topics and i did find that there was a difference even for the same questions that i would ask and that was helpful in thinking about recommendations for policy because you may not want to launch a, a big reconciliation policy or a program or any type of coexistence program when there was right around any type of anniversary, which makes total sense. Yeah. As I was reading and, and kind of as, as we're starting to wrap up our, our, our interview today, um, I was, I was reflecting on the role that memorial sites play in the United States. And I know this is something that, that you're thinking about too. And what I was surprised to see is that even one of your Rwandan uh, interviewees was thinking about mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of your interviews, uh, person said, uh, look at America, where you come from, where there are no memorials to slavery or other injustices that Americans have done. Mm -hmm. uh, though this is change, this is changing, you know, for instance, we, we do have the opening of the National Memorial to Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, mm -hmm. and the memorial that, that you mentioned in Minneapolis as well. There are still far more monuments to enslavers than there are memorials to the enslaved um, or to victims of, of genocide or ethnic or racial exclusion. So I'm I'm just kind of curious, like, what are some of your insights from your work in Rwanda that you found to be most applicable to contemporary calls to remove Confederate statues here in the in the U.S.? Yeah, that comment from from Isabel is really interesting, and actually, I, I get that quite a bit because I take students to Ghana on a study abroad, and we visit the the dungeons that enslaved folks were were kept in and it we talk a lot about how they these are sites that are memorialized and we don't have sites outside the the national memorial to peace and justice in montgomery alabama which really focuses on really an era of lynching rather than even just slavery and for your listeners who haven't been, it's the most incredible memorial and museum I think I've ever been to in the United States. So I, my colleague, David Cunningham, brought me there for the opening, and I'm forever grateful. It, it's a really powerful memorial. And for listeners, my colleague, Christina Simcoe, does some really incredible work on that. So her scholarship is, it is really insightful on that. But I think what we can say is that memorials, what we have in our built environment shows what a nation values. And so as we take these down or or keep them up, it it shows what we care about and who we care about. And I recently, I wrote a piece with actually my colleagues, Stephen and Christina about confederate monuments and and from that just i 
I think the contextualization of those memorials is what's most helpful for a lot of people rather than necessarily taking them down and putting them in a warehouse. But having a plaque that explains that in one one era we used to we used to think about those that enslaved other human beings as heroes and that we no longer do mm-hmm. and that this is now a monument that recognizes a, a change in beliefs and that white supremacy is a system that's difficult to dismantle and this is a piece of evidence that shows a system that is so hurtful for everyone who's part of it or you know those are obviously that would not be the plaque because that's not (laughs) very eloquent but you know i think i think we want to think about all of these as 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 opportunities for people to to learn and I'm not sure if it goes in a warehouse, people can learn it, maybe a museum or or such. But there's some interesting case studies, like what things that people in Mississippi have done to conceptualize these spaces. Yeah, and it brings us back to the idea that you mentioned earlier uh, of having the evidence to point to, like, 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 like having right. the tour guides being able to point to that, having these statues with contextualizing information, it, it, it does present the evidence that this was a way of life or a way of thinking. Well, and also that these statues aren't, aren't old. Right. That's what a lot of the, you know, these are old historical facts. Actually, they're not. They're, they just were put up during, you know, the civil rights movement. And, and I want to also bring it back to some of the new memorials for, for justice, including the memorial in Minneapolis for for those who experience sexual violence and sexual harm. And that's an incredible, incredible one for listeners to look up because that really includes indigenous women. It's a, a beautiful mosaic and it's a, it's a very, very inclusive memorial space. And so I think what we're also now seeing is memorials that are incredibly thoughtful in their their design and their presentation. Well, that is all the time we have today, Nicole. Uh, but today we've been in conversation with Nicole Fox about her monograph, After Genocide, Memory and Reconciliation in Rwanda, published in 2021 by the University of Wisconsin Press. Nicole, it's been such a pleasure having you on Madison Bookbeat. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I am your host, Andrew Thomas. I'll be back Monday, September 4th, for a conversation with Quan Berry on her 2022 novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. It should be a good one, so don't miss it. You can find a recording of this interview on wartfm.org and a podcast version wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to Madison Bookbeat to stay up to date on Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. Thanks to today's talk producer, Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman. Intro music was written and performed by Alex Frizzell. Coming up next is Three Hours of Jazz with Alex Wilding White. Keep it here on WORT 89.9 FM, listener sponsored community radio.